a Bible and turn with us to 1 Thessalonians this morning, chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 gives us instruction about the Lord's return, and certainly there has been a lot of misunderstanding about the Lord's return. It's not just in our day. It dated all the way back to the very beginning of the church. There was misunderstanding while Paul was still walking and teaching and talking. And uh, that misunderstanding hasn't ever ended. And I think in large part because people are preying on what we anticipate They prey on those who have faith, those who anticipate the Lord's return, and they prey on the fears of mankind. And so the Apostle Paul addresses what is uh, often misunderstood in what I trust is a familiar familiar passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren. I don't want you to walk around unknowing what is yet to come. I want you to know, I want you to anticipate, and I want you to function and walk and act in a certain way based on that knowledge. As if he were to say, this issue is far too important for you to simply gloss over or ignore. You need to have a full, comprehensive understanding of what to expect. And when you do, that will bring great comfort to you. And so many of the early church, particularly that Paul was writing to and responding to, believed that the Lord's coming coming was both imminent and immediate. And those are two important words. Imminent implies that it could happen at any moment. And the immediate, of course, means that it's going to happen at the very next moment. So imminent and immediate were being misconstrued. The coming of the Lord was and is imminent. It will come, and it could happen at any moment. We don't know when it is, but that does not necessarily mean that it's going to be immediate. Uh, Many in the early church had taken that immediacy of the Lord's return and began to sell property and give away private possessions and hook up signs to their donkeys. The end is near. I'm sure there was some of that going on. Probably some graffiti on the sides of the city walls say, prepare, judgment is coming. Maybe not graffiti, but in their doing these things, they became a burden to others because they had quit their jobs because the Lord's coming was immediate in their minds, and so they had no livelihood, and when the food began to run out, then they had to go to their Christian brothers and say, hey, uh, do you have a little extra And that was causing a burden and a hardship on the church. And so Paul, on one hand, he commends their brotherly love and care for one another, but he tells them in verses 11 and 12 that they should keep their hands profitably occupied. They need to be laboring, working. And I think this is kind of interesting because this is how the Lord instructed the disciples. You remember? Remember the Great Commission? The Lord is ready to ascend into the heavens And he says, I have instruction for you. Go and make disciples. This is what your task is going to be when I'm gone. Your task is to tell the truth of the gospel and share the reality of who I am and that I'm coming back and I will be with you in the process of doing that. But that term go is an instruction that says, as you are going. It doesn't mean drop everything and leave it and go. 
It literally means as you are going through the routine of life, be in the process of making disciples constantly, continually until I come again. And I will be with you in that process of making disciples as you are going about your daily routine of life. We read, I think, of, of a very powerful and certainly contemporary example of that in our Sunday school class this morning. If you missed Sunday school, I'm so sorry you missed out. But I did post the letter on the bulletin board. Some of you remember Nelson Morales, a uh, missionary to Mexico City, who a couple of our families uh, went down and joined him several years ago and worked in one of his churches for some time. And uh, he had had a medical problem, heart problem. And before he went into the hospital, he says, Lord, I know you have a purpose in this. And so when he went to the hospital and they couldn't put him into the cardiology wing, they put him in some other wing. He says, Lord, I'm very uncomfortable. I'd like to be in a bed, but I know that you have a purpose. You have people that I need to speak with at this end of the hospital. And he led one to the Lord. He ministered to, I think, about six or eight others, including two foreign doctors, because he was making disciples as he was going through the routine and even the unexpected events of life. And this is what Paul is talking about here. As you are going, doesn't matter what your life entails, doesn't matter what occupation you're in, as you are going, be making disciples. And so he says, keep your hands profitably occupied in labor until I come. And that's what he said at the beginning as he sent his disciples off to ministry. Be going about busily, being occupied. And here Paul says this to these people who had gone and taken some extreme positions. I think he's pointing to the fact that true faith in Christ, even faith in the second coming, does not produce a fanaticism. There certainly ought to be a, a level of intensity, but not a fanaticism. It doesn't encourage people to abandon everything, dress in white robes, and run up to a mountaintop to meet the Lord. Remember that uh, one of the last words of the Lord to His disciples in Luke 19 was, Occupy till I come. Keep working. Keep busy. He didn't know when He was going to return. He said, Mark records that the disciples asked him, what will be the day of your return and the hour of it? And, uh, of course, having not logged on to Harold Camping's website, he, he didn't know. He said, only the Father in heaven knows. He didn't know the time of his return. He could have chosen to, but he did not because he'd left that in the Father's hands. And the Christians here in Thessalonica were making fools of themselves by stressing the immediacy of the Lord's return to such a degree that they had stopped working. And that's why the apostle instructs them to keep busy. Now, the, most, the latest event here with uh, Harold Camping and his signs around uh, the states declaring that the Lord is coming and judgment is coming and whatnot is not the first of its kind. Many of you have lived through a number of these. You can go all the way back to 1846. A group of followers of William Miller abandoned their work, sold their possessions, went to a hilltop to wait for the Lord as their prophet had declared. The Lord was coming on a specific date, and there was tremendous expectancy on their part. But, of course, Jesus didn't come, and He didn't come on May 21st, and He's not going to come on October 21st. That would be my bit of prophecy. Uh, the Lord has chosen a date 
God the Father, and that date will be fulfilled. And how dare we think that we know more than the very Son of God when it comes to these matters. They became fools. And many turned against biblical prophecy because of what they have done. Now, fortunately, many have turned to prophecy. And they've been concerned about these things. And even some of you have given testimony that you've had opportunities to talk to people about the coming of the Lord. And so there are opportunities. And that's what we need to be doing as these opportunities come and as these circumstances uh, face us. We need to say, well, what does the Word of God say? Because just because somebody misinterpreted it doesn't mean it's not going to happen. God's Word will still be fulfilled. And the apostle, so he corrects this kind of thinking in these words, keep busy. This is his advice. Keep from meddling in inappropriate affairs. Don't try to get people to follow foolish ideas that you have about prophetic thinking. If it doesn't declare specifically what it is, say so. Keep busy. Provide your needs so you don't become a burden to others. And then you will win the respect of the outside, the unbelieving world. Now, Paul takes up this issue of Christ's return in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, beginning in verse 13. He says, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Interesting that word sleep. He uses it twice in this brief passage. And interesting enough that that term, sleep, is never used in the New Testament of anybody except a believer. And I think there's a good reason for that. And what he's showing is that death for the believer is really nothing more than going to sleep. Now, don't misinterpret that. I'm not talking about soul sleep. It's a picture. It's a description. It says they're going to sleep. They're going to awaken in heaven, and we're going to be awakened, as it were, with them. We're going to see them again. You see, when mom or dad lays down on the couch, probably dad, and, and he takes a nap, you don't call 911 and say, there's a problem, he's asleep. You better not. He'll wake up grumpy. Because you know that in just a matter of a few minutes or an hour or two or whatever it happens to be, he's going to wake up again and you're going to be interacting again and life is going to go on so you don't get excited about somebody taking a nap. And that's kind of what Paul is saying here. Your loved one has died. They've gone to sleep. You're going to reunite with them and you're going to enjoy fellowship again. We have that confidence is what he's saying. You remember what he said of Jairus' daughter who had died in Mark 5.39. She is sleeping. He's, that's a wonderful encouragement for those who are facing the death of a loved one. The question that the Thessalonian believers were asking is, would they see their loved ones again? They were expecting the Lord to return at any moment, any day, and they thought that their loved ones who had died would not be resurrected until the final resurrection at the end of time. And so their anticipation is they wouldn't see them till this far-off event. And this is the same response, by the way, that the sisters of Lazarus had in John 11. Jesus said to Martha, your brother will live again. And Martha replies, oh, yeah, I know. He'll live again at the last day. And she was imagining that Jesus was referring to what she had learned from the Old Testament, that there is a resurrection of the dead, resurrection of the believers and unbelievers alike in the last day. 
But Jesus meant he was going to do something right then and there. And we know from that account that Lazarus arose from the dead at that very time. And in Thessalonians, they also didn't understand this. They thought it would be a long time off before they'd see their loved ones again. I think that there are maybe five uh, truths that we will help us understand this passage. Um, the first is this. They expected the return of Jesus before any of them died. This was a moment-by-moment -moment expect expectation for the early church. The first century Christians never entertained the thought that they would physically die. They thought the Lord was coming within a couple of days, maybe a few weeks. And in this first chapter of this letter, Paul commends the Thessalonians for waiting for the Son of God from heaven, chapter 1, verse 10. That's what they were looking for. So they had the focus correct. They just didn't have the timing correct. Uh, and I have to wonder how much it would impact us, our daily activity, if we lived with that level of expectancy, that moment-by-moment -moment realization that God could come now. We believe it up here. Do we practice it here? We get pretty complacent, I think. Well, you know, uh, Jesus didn't come yesterday when I was thinking those bad thoughts. I got away with it. So I'll bet I could do that again today. I mean, what are the chances? I mean, it's been, what, 2,000 years? I, I could probably get away with it again. That's not living with expectancy, isn't it? That's not watching and waiting. Do you expect the Lord to return? Do you believe it could be at any moment? Does that impact your heart, your life, your thoughts, your actions? These Thessalonians really believed that Jesus could return at any moment. And in fact, Jesus' own words about his return were addressed to people who were still alive. He was speaking to them as though it would be. They would be alive when he returned. To his disciples, he said, watch, for you do not know the hour. Be ready, Matthew 24, 42. He used terms like, do not be deceived. The Son of Man will come at an hour you think not. There's really no mention of the impact of his coming on those who had already died. It was always focused on the living. Well, that's logical, isn't it? And we understand the rest of the story from Paul's instruction that those who have died are already with the Lord right now. And so his instruction is to you and I that are living in this world full of temptation and distraction. And he's saying, live like it could be at any moment. The second thing, truth that they were dealing with is they were projecting the sequences of time into eternity. I think we struggle with the concept of time as opposed to eternity. We tend to think of eternity like a sermon. Okay, I'm at risk saying that, I know. It's going on and on and on forever. Right? That's eternity. Sunday morning lasts an eternity. <laughs> that's not eternity. That, that's not a picture of biblical eternity. Now, I've used this uh, illustration 
a few times before, but let me describe it first of all to say that time has sequences. Time has past. It has a present, and then it has a future. That's the nature of time. It moves as opposed to eternity, which is always in the present. Always. Uh, It's hard to grasp. The illustration is the little boy that goes and he hears the parade coming down the street, and so he runs, but he's only three feet tall. He can't see over the fence, so he looks through a knothole. And here comes the parade. There goes a marching band. That's all he sees. And then he sees the clowns. And then he sees the acrobats. And then he sees the float go by. And one by one, piece by piece, he sees the parade pass in sequence. As opposed to God, who, as it were, maybe in the blimp, and he sees the beginning of the parade, and he sees the end of the parade, and he sees it all at once. I don't think we grasp the nature of eternity. Our minds are limited. Interesting, in time, we're sitting here in this building, and this lighting, this temperature, this other, and our bodies are all here. But interesting enough, your mind may not be here. (laughs) Our bodies are all experiencing the same thing, but for some reason, God has made our mind to be able to think and do all kinds of other things while our body stays right here, doesn't it? You can go to the past and think about grandma. You can go out to the lake and think about uh, the picnic you're going to have. You can go to No, you wouldn't go to school. Uh, All kinds of places your mind can go and think about, but your body's still here. And I think that's a little bit of God preparing us for eternity. Though I believe that Paul knew the difference between time and eternity, he reassures the Thessalonians without becoming overly complex and obscure, explains that the living and the dead will be united. They'll be together when the Lord returns. And he says, yes, you will see your loved ones immediately when the Lord returns. Whether you join them in that event when you die or when he comes back, either one, you're going to join together with your loved ones. And that's the point that he's making here. He goes on to give them a new revelation. For we say to you, by the word of the Lord, in verse 15... And I take that to mean that he's giving them some information that he hadn't previously taught them when he was in Thessalonica. He had taught them about Jesus' death and resurrection, how that would affect them, but he didn't give them details about the circumstances of his coming again. And so now he's revealing further truth in verse 15, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. So that sheds a little more light on the subject. We will be together, says Paul. Don't worry about that. You're going to find your loved ones again when the Lord returns. And then he gives some details about how that's all going to take place. Look at verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Paul calls this the coming 
of the Lord. And many people confuse this because they tend to regard the coming of the Lord as a single event, one-time, major, catastrophic appearing. But if we study through the Scriptures, we find that the coming of the Lord is really a series of events. The series has a very dramatic beginning, and that would be the rapture, as Paul describes here, with Jesus appearing to take both the living and dead saints to be with him. And then it has a very dramatic ending when the Lord himself said he would reveal himself to the entire world. They shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of glory with all his heavenly hosts. He's going to come and rule and reign on earth. That's a little different from the one this event described here, the rapture. You can't make those two quite fit together. As being between them then is that period known as the tribulation. Now, in our passage, he mentions three sounds, and this is interesting. He connects the initial appearing of Jesus with these noises. It first of all says that the Lord himself shall descend. He's the one coming. Don't you love that when you know somebody that you love is coming? They're not just sending a message, but... They are coming, and you're going to see them. He's not going to send Michael, some archangel. He's not going to send Gabriel or anybody else. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is going to come himself for you and I. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. So the question is, well, who is that shout addressed to? Because these three sounds, I believe, are addressed to three different groups. And I think Scripture gives us the answer. Jesus said in John 5, the hour is coming and now is. Now, that's interesting. That's kind of that blending of time and eternity, isn't it? The hour is coming, that's time, but now is, that's eternity. Most assuredly, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who here will live, John 5, 25. Jesus stood before the tomb of Lazarus, remember, and he called out, Lazarus, come forth. And to the amazement of the crowd, this dead man was now walking, alive. He appeared in the doorway of the tomb, still wrapped up in his grave clothes. He had heard the voice of the living God. And he responded to it. Many commentators have mentioned, commentated on this. And they said, good thing he said, Lazarus, come forth. Otherwise, the whole graveyard would have come forth. What a scene that would have been. Good thing there wasn't anybody else named Lazarus there, I guess. But the hour is coming when all the dead shall hear the voice of the Lord, the Son of God, and they will come forth. The cry and the command is addressed to the dead. And to those in the tombs who have fallen asleep, now in the Lord. It's not all the dead who are going to hear this, but only the bodies of the dead who know Christ is Savior. Now, there's another sound. He talks about the voice of the archangel. Well, there's only one angel in Scripture referred to as an archangel, and that's Michael. Gabriel was a great angel, but he was not an archangel in the Scripture. 
You have to go back to Daniel chapter 12, but we read in the first few verses that an angel said to Daniel, at that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. That's the key phrase right there, the sons of your people. Daniel 12, 1. Your people is Israel. Michael, interestingly enough, is always connected with the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. And Michael will stand up in that day and there will be a resurrection. Those who are in the tombs will come forth, Daniel was told. Also, the living nations of Israel will be summoned to a new revelation of God. And details of that event involve the 144,000 Israelites, 12,000 from each tribe. Don't be swayed by what you may hear on the streets from various witnesses. The 144,000 are Israelites. Scripture declares that to be so. Not some cult, not some person who hopes to be among that number. It is Israel that is in view here. 12,000 specifically from each tribe. And they're described in chapter 7 and 14 of Revelation. But they will be called into a new revelation of God and Jesus to follow him wherever he goes on earth in his, the time of his presence. And that begins when Jesus returns for his church and the archangel calls Israel into this new relationship with the Lord. You remember we talked a little bit last week about all Israel will be saved as a nation. This is when that begins to take place. There's a third sound. It's the great trumpet call. That was a trumpet call that was heard on Mount Sinai when the law was given to Israel. Trumpet sounded so loudly that the people held their ears and they cried out saying, Stop! We can't stand this anymore! Now, I, I don't think that the world at large is going to hear that trumpet sound. Only those to whom it is addressed are going to hear it. And Paul identifies them in 1 Corinthians 15. That's the great resurrection chapter. And he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Not all believers are going to go to heaven through the passageway of death. Some will be caught up together with the Lord, he's saying. But we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 2. Oh, we've told you a little bit about that verse before. Some nurseries, referring to the babies, use that verse. You know, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. All right, we'll move on. But this verse is very specifically targeted at living saints. So we have the voice of Jesus to dead saints. We have Michael speaking to the nation of Israel, and we have the trumpet call to the living saints. And what a transformation that all brings about. We're not all going to die, but we will all be changed, and that's important. At the last trump, when that trumpet sound reaches the ears of living believers, though I believe it will be inaudible to the rest of the world, we will be changed. We'll be caught up together with the Lord. And this is the wonderful culmination then, the fifth truth, is that this brings comfort the understanding of these truths and what God has in store is going to bring comfort to you. Now, he uses the word comfort one another, uh, verse 18, 
Comfort one another with these words. That word comfort is the word paraclesis in the Greek, and it simply means a calling to one side. A calling to one side. And it has in mind the ideas of combining the idea of encouragement and the alleviation of grief. Let me encourage you. Let me alleviate your grief. Let me call you to my side. That's what I'm going to do in that act. You remember in John 14, 16, Jesus said, I am going to send you another comforter. That word another is another of the same kind. I'm going to send you one just like me. Has my, na- my nature, my character. And this comforter is another like me. Not another of a different kind. It's another of the same kind. And that's going to bring encouragement and comfort to you. Somebody who's going to come along and is going to give you strength and give you encouragement and going to give you confidence. Now, let me build on this just a little bit. When you receive Christ as your Savior, in that moment, the Spirit of God indwells you. The Spirit is the comforter. Isn't that what Jesus told us? So if the Spirit indwells us, you and I, Spirit-infused and dwelt believers, can come alongside and comfort one another. So we could say, so then come alongside to strengthen and encourage one another with this great hope. Do you see where he's gone with this? Now, all Scripture is given by inspiration. That's the outbreathing of God, accomplished by the work of the Holy Spirit. In fact, 2 Peter 1, 20 says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, who is the Comforter. So if 1 Thessalonians 4, 18 was dictated by the Comforter himself, so that we who are indwelt by the Comforter might come alongside and be a comfort to one another by His enabling. What a task we have at hand, amen? And I think this comfort comes at a couple of levels at least. First of all, it says we will be together as the great family of God. We're going to be in His presence. Comfort in knowing that those who we have loved, who have since gone on to be with the Lord, we will join them soon. Soon and very soon. And I say soon relative to the eternal nature that is yet to come. It may not be tomorrow. It could be today. But I know that once it takes place, I'm going to look back at time and I'm going to go, wow, in a moment, how fleeting was life. Our separation is transient, it's short-lived, it's limited in scope, but our reunion will be everlasting. And the other great hope that I see here is that we will be with the Lord forever. Whatever happens from that point forward is done with the Lord. He's not going to say, hey, you, you wait here in heaven, I got some work to do. He's going to bring us with We're going to be involved in everything that He is from that point forward. It's a critical point that Paul stresses that we will see Jesus face to face. And that has always been a source of encouragement and comfort to believers down throughout the centuries. Years ago, I took a picture of uh, 
a mountain scene in Glacier National Park, Montana. And I've looked at those pictures of the majestic peaks and looked at that and thought, wow, it is so beautiful. Step out and see this. I'd love to see scenes like that every day. And then I have a picture also of uh, a lighthouse on the Oregon coast. I think I took it on our honeymoon years ago, 26 years ago. And uh, looking over the Pacific Ocean, the, the, the waves dashing up against the rocks, thinking how great it would be to live with a scene like that day in and day out. You know, we look at creation, and we imagine the beauty of it, and we, we marvel at it. And that gets us excited in anticipation. But can you imagine seeing the very creator of that creation face to face? You see, if we get enthused over the mere shadows... What will it be like to see the actual substance himself? It's easy to see a beautiful painting or a view or whatever it is of magnificent nature and a masterpiece. But how much better to see the artist himself? When we were on vacation recently, we walked into a few galleries looking at different pictures and most of them were prints. Number 432 of 6,000. You can have this one. Some of them were the real deal. And the cost difference was astronomical. You would like to buy a print, it's $1,200. You want to buy the real thing? Do you got 25 grand on hand? It's like, whoa, I'll do the print. That's nice. (laughs) See, when the author was directly involved, the price went up. It's of greater value. Samuel Rutherford was a Scottish preacher back in the 17th century at a time when Scotland was facing deep persecution. A poet took much of his writings and put them together in a very, what became a popular hymn of the 19th century. In fact, it was one of D.L. Moody's favorite hymns. Uh, A number of years ago, I was in England back in the early 80s, and in a bookstore, I found an old Baptist church hymnal, a little different from yours and mine. It doesn't have any, any, uh, any notes. You've got to know the tune. <laughs> but tucked away in here is this poem written from Rutherford's words, and it says, The sands of time are sinking. The dawn of heaven breaks. The summer morn I've sighed for, the fair sweet morn awakes. Dark, dark has been the midnight, but the day spring is at hand. In glory, glory dwells in Emmanuel's land. O Christ, he is the fountain, the deep, sweet well of love. The streams on earth I've tasted, more deep I'll drink above. There to an ocean fullness, his mercy doth expand. In glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my King of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. The marvelous hope that we have when we consider facing our own mortality, when we stand at the grave of a loved one, we're comforted by the tremendous vision of tomorrow that awaits God's people. And that's the purpose that Paul had in mind when he wrote and he gave this revelation. 
And he doesn't want you or I to be ignorant of this great truth. I think the, the message of this passage is well captured in the hymn by James Black. When the trumpet of the Lord shall sound and time shall be no more. Eternity. The morning breaks eternal, bright and fair. When the saved of earth will gather over on the other shore and the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. Do you have that promise? Are you going to be there in that moment, in that day? Do you have that confidence and that hope? Or maybe there's some concern. Maybe you're saying, well, you know, I, I like the sound of it, but I'm just not 100% sure. The Apostle John wrote, these things are written that you might know. You don't have to guess about it. The day is coming as surely as I stand before you. And you have an opportunity to respond until that moment, which could be at any moment. The Word of the Lord has declared it to be so, and we can take Him at His Word. If you know the Lord, glory in that great promise and that great hope. If you don't know Him, would you meet Him today? You can. A mere act of your will as you express your desire to Him, telling Him that you understand that Jesus is God's Son, that He came on your behalf for the very purpose of bringing you into a relationship with the Father. He took your sin on His own body. He took that to the cross and He suffered and He bled and died to pay the price of your sin. Receive that gift and He promises to be your Savior to give you the hope that we've talked about so that you can have confidence when He comes. Would you bow with me? Father, thank You for that great hope that we long for, the glorious appearing of our great Savior, the Lord Jesus. Pray, Father, that we would go away with the confidence of that and that it would affect our very life, our very action, activity, our interaction with others. Lord, I pray that we would live expectantly and be busy as we're going about our routine of life making disciples. Lord, I pray for those that made to them as it has for so many through the ages. And we give you the thanks and the glory for that in Jesus' name. Amen.